Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, Pier Paolo Petrassi, Master of Wine and Master of Waitrose and Partners selection of wines and spirits. We'll hear how they select the drinks that make their way to the shelves, how sustainability plays out the latest trends and what he thinks might be next. He was Italy's first master of wine and for more than a decade, Pierpaolo Petrassi has been in charge of beer, wine and spirits at what must be Britain's best loved retailer, Waitrose and Partners. Having followed his father into the drinks trade, his specialism is unsurprisingly Italy, uh, though he was actually born over here, and I suspect he has to know about uh, the whole gamut, really. We'll find out. Um, the team at Waitrose are celebrating, having just landed uh, the double of best supermarket for wine and also for spirits at the IWSC, uh, the most prestigious retail awards. And uh, Waitrose won both of those awards. Uh, I'm delighted to say um, that Pierpaolo has taken some time out from the celebrations and from his busy schedule uh, to join us. Uh, Pierpaolo, welcome to The Drinking Hour. David, thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to be here. Good to chat. Uh, Well, I'm looking forward to chatting to you. And uh, first of all, then, congratulations. Um, What do these awards mean to you and your colleagues? Um, I mean, a huge amount. We, we we set a lot of store with with doing the right thing first and foremost, and being recognised for that. I think is um is a fantastic accolade, and I can't overestimate the impact it has internally, both in terms of the you know the, the trading team that I look after, but also hundreds, thousands of partners across the business who all play their part in um, in presenting what we show to customers day in day out as they walk through the door when it comes to wines and spirits. So yeah, it means a huge amount. You know, we're incredibly proud of the of the awards we've won. And and this is kind of the cherry on top, really. The IWSC is, is one that we are particularly proud of. Oh, it's great to hear and uh, richly deserved. And it's worth saying the retail environment is pretty tough at the moment, isn't it? It's an exciting place to be at all times. And I, I, w- I was thrilled to, to be given the opportunity to start working in retail many years ago. But it is incredibly exciting. Uh, and you have to take the rough with the smooth. You know, sometimes you have uh, a relatively easy ride. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit tougher and you need to be 
good at thinking on your feet and trying to balance that classic tandem of tactics and strategy. The former, a little bit more flexible and fluid. The latter is really important to keep in mind during those um, tough times. But yeah, not easy at the moment. And uh, you must be feeling um, the effects that producers are are feeling of uh, this kind of perfect storm of um, of, of, of the uh, the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, uh, the spike in inflation, the dry goods shortage. When you talk to a, a wine producer, as I do frequently, you look at, say, the, the cost of a bottle alone trebling in some cases. It is, as I say, uh, tough out there at the moment, isn't it? It, it is incredibly tough. And I suppose the um, the last few years, including COVID, have taught us a lot more about the complexity of our supply chains, uh, which which is a good thing because I think it stands us in better stead going forward for understanding um, that complexity, how how we can sometimes render it simpler um, and have a greater level of transparency with those producers. But yes, of course, you know, from uh, from the perspective of cereal crops um, being much more expensive, that has a huge impact on on spirits pricing. With with glass, yes, absolutely right. You know, we, we've learned more about where glass comes from and where it's ordered by our various suppliers over the last um, couple of years than probably at any time in the past. And that's at a time when we're also trying to do our best to try and minimise our footprint. So perhaps the complexity of some of those supply chains and our ability going forward to simplify them is going to actually be a good thing, a good silver lining to the current cloud. Yeah, I think that's very true. And we're going to come to sustainability in a minute, uh, because it's really important to the awards that you've uh, just won. On prices, the people I know who are, you know, looking at all of their kind of costs rising, and uh, they go off to the supermarket, um, they kind of have a, a pretty fixed price, I think, in their head of what they're prepared to pay for a bottle of wine, for example. And I get the strong sense when I chat to them sometimes that they, they haven't really kind of factored in a, a 10% rise in the price of a bottle of wine. That must present you and your buying teams with um, really quite a, a challenge in, in kind of trying to keep a grip on on prices and at the same time, obviously not sort of screwing suppliers as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a very good point. And one mantra, which I repeat quite often to my team, is that of all the things we sell, which sit under our trading department, the vast majority are things that the customer doesn't actually need. If it it came to it, they wouldn't actually need them. It's not like buying bread or flour or milk. They're not essentials. And therefore, we're often competing not just with other supermarkets, but potentially at a time of constricted spend for many customers um, with their... Netflix subscription, the the money they're putting in a piggy bank for a summer holiday, you know, all sorts of other things. So I think continuing to try and give value for money and explain as much as we can why things might be changing, uh, as much as is possible to absorb those um, costs ourselves where possible as well, or work with suppliers to understand where money is being spent on the on the production of the product that perhaps isn't um, isn't creating any value. So extra packaging, uh, extra processes, uh, extra transport legs that we might be able to take away. So it's, it's a question of trying to hand in hand with the suppliers, also value engineer the, the cost of the product so that neither they uh, nor we lose and we hopefully give the benefit to um, to customers. But yeah, it's, it's hugely complex and um, not not an easy thing to go through for either they or us, and clearly very difficult for customers at the moment too. And 
you have the added dimension in your area uh, compared to your buying colleagues where the uh, exchequer has quite a bit of, um, you know, what could be your margin, I suppose. You know, duty, we accept that it's there um, and it's there are health reasons and, and others that, that uh, make the case for uh, for duty. But it does um, add, you know, another whack onto your um, prices, doesn't it, effectively as a retailer? Yeah, it does. And uh, the, I suppose the, the, the thing that we've tried to do as an industry over the last few years is work hand in hand with government, with Treasury, and try and explain to them the link, the causal link between volume and inevitable um, rises in, in excise duty um, to the point where actually the total amount that the extractor might take in could actually reduce if excise duty goes up by quite a bit because there is um, uh, an inverse relationship between volume and price in, 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 in selling alcohol and, and this would make a tangible um, effect as well as you know, potentially also rendering the whole duty regime a little bit more complex. So different rates for different levels of alcohol in wine is one of the proposals um, that the Alcohol Duty Review put forward. So I suppose all we can do is try and work with them, explain the probable consequences of certain actions, whilst recognising that it's an important source of revenue for the exchequer, and it would be probably slightly naive to assume that they could sweep it away um, in 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 one in one stroke that that's just not on the table exactly as you say it, it's it's part of the makeup of the product which which for now is is in place and we have to respect it um, but yeah setting the right level and also being mindful of not creating too much of a treacle effect in terms of the administration is really important and something we're trying to lobby as an industry under the auspices of the Wine and Spirit Trade Association to try and um, help government with that decision. Let's talk sustainability because, um, as you say, it was a, a major part of the uh, Waitrose offer. It was um, something that uh, you know Waitrose and Partners was cited for its long term commitment on on sustainability. You know these the judges who who look at the entries in this category. I know because I've done it. Um, are very mindful of the likes of of greenwashing and the rest of it. Um, you know you have to put your own experience of being in a store um, of of what you see being done uh, into the uh, into the equation as you judge these things and, and Waitrose and Partners uh, having scooped both of these awards has, has done very well on that front so tell us about some of the things that you have done that you're kind of most proud of on uh, sustainability. So I think when you approach the whole subject of sustainability David you've got to be mindful of of wanting to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not of what any uh, potential impact might be on social media or with customers. You've got, to, you've got to, unless you're in the mindset of doing the right thing because it's embedded in your DNA, which with the John Lewis Partnership and Waitrose, it definitely is. It's part of our constitution. Treading lightly is a vitally important part of the impact we feel we have to have on society and the planet. So I think if it comes from a good place, then you can start to look at every aspect of your operation from an end to end perspective. And that's where perhaps the the close relationship we have with a lot of suppliers allows us to just be um, curious with them and ask them, you know, what's your how much water do you need to make a litre of wine? How uh, how sustainable are are the um, are the products you're using in the vineyard? How heavy does a bottle need to be? Um, How many samples do we need to pull in? for one particular opportunity on shelf. You know, the more we pull in, the more we're asking suppliers to spend money 
put you know products in packaging, send them over to us. You know, all of these are collateral impacts of decisions that we make every day, and therefore nothing is out of scope. Nothing is out of scope. But more recently, the change to bring small bottles into um, cans in the UK has been uh, a really uh, important change for us, which we think will gather more and more momentum for wine going forward. I think what also helped us in that regard, rather than perhaps the perception of cans 20, 30 years ago when it was about cheap beer, the fact that the craft beer market has used them and used them to celebrate something premium as a good a good vessel to store something in has definitely helped change customer perception. So really proud of that. We don't lead the field in how much we bring into the UK in bulk to then package here. Uh, but we feel that there are opportunities for us to do a lot more. And I've got a, a great um, new colleague who joined us last year called Barry Dick, a fellow master of wine. Uh, and this is really his specialist area. So, uh, you know, we're putting our money where our mouth is in terms of doing things to hopefully tread much more lightly from that perspective. Weights of bottles is something that we often obsess about. Um, as we look at a whole array of wines on our tasting bench uh, at Bracknell, we, we constantly think about the packaging that these wines are presented in and how appropriate it, it is. Now, wine is a really emotional thing to buy for many customers and having something which you're proud to present either on your own dinner table or to friends to give as a gift is vitally important. And the look and feel of that bottle, that label is, is, is important. And it's striking the right balance to make sure that we're not just accepting bottle weights, which are very heavy or too heavy um, for the sake of it. So I think, you know, being much, much more mindful about a whole array of decisions from end to end of the, of the supply chain is, um, is, is the way we like to run our business, irrespective of what the positive impact might be on customers. It's interesting you mentioned cans, uh, because I love the format. I think the quality is excellent. Of course, they're, they're lightweight. Uh, they're, um, although they have a bad start in life with bauxite, they're infinitely recyclable. They could outlive you or I if, uh, if, if we put our mind to recycling them properly. They're a great format, I think. And yet, I remember writing my cl- uh, column for Club Inologique um, about a year and a half ago, because I'd just been to a festival. And the wine I had in, in Cannes uh, was uniformly terrible, actually. Um, and it was a great, great shame, I, I felt at the time. For a start, am I actually... Um, a bit harsh am I wrong there (laughs) and and secondly um, if it is changing how are you seeing the quality changing Uh, you you mentioned lots of the benefits of the of the vessel itself like for packaging any kind of wine it needs to be inert more and more now it needs to be something which is sustainable one great thing about aluminium cans is that the the gap between a customer consuming them and then going back into the recycling chain where exactly as you say you can produce almost Another aluminium can from that material that you recycle is brilliant and it and it, it actually beats any other format into a cocked hat from that perspective. I think if you put good wine into those cans, which we hope um, we do and and, and, and the, the initial impact of, of our change appears to have really inspired customers, then there's no reason at all why the format itself should should change um, uh, the, the taste of the wine at all it's it's perfectly inert so I think Rather than being seen as a way of producing something cheaply, we should be proud of putting good wine into all of those formats uh, and then hopefully getting customers to enjoy them, enjoy enjoy what they taste rather than what they perceive. And what about these kind of cardboard 
wine bottles that have some kind of clever lining uh, that, that, again, protects the wine. I don't know nearly enough about that as a format. I'm starting to see those uh, bottles. And I understand there's a lot of demand for that particular format, um, such that they're kind of struggling to keep up the producers. Is that a format that you're interested in? I think we would look at absolutely everything. We've seen a couple of those on the tasting bench, um, David, and they're really interesting. And I suppose what we're trying to do as well is rather than just dive in and possibly disappoint customers is to run some tests ourselves, look at them, try and understand how well they keep wine once open uh, for a few days and try and also understand how good they are at keeping wine over an extended period of time. So we're running some internal tests to see how those perform. But, you know, nothing should be off the table. Um, you know, the, the the climate catastrophe is something that we all have to think about and, and impacts us every day. And there's nothing that is uh, is is related to any of the work we do day to day that shouldn't be shouldn't have a lens of what's the environmental impact of what we're doing. Uh, and so f- alternative formats is something that we will absolutely embrace and get better at going forward. I was talking to uh, Jessica Julmi at uh, Moet Hennessy Group. Um, she was at the time uh, running Chateau Galoupe, a sort of uh, sustainability um, experiment for the group um, in Provence, producing some you know excellent wines, including um, at the time a, a wine that was released in uh, PET, um, Ocean Recovered PET, another uh, alternative format. Um, on the uh, sort of spectrum of formats. Um, She was talking about um, this, what she called whack-a-mole, this sense that when you do something uh, that you think is going to have a positive impact, um, there can be kind of unintended consequences that that, that then pop up. Uh, It's very hard to get sustainability right, isn't it? It is. It is. You you really need that end-to-end approach. And I think the most important thing is having a really open and honest dialogue. As much as you think you might be doing the right thing, the more people you can ask uh, to just sense check that what you're doing is not having a negative impact on their doorstep, upstream and downstream of, of those decisions is vitally important. And that's one one thing that having had the legacy of really close relationships with suppliers for many, many decades, for generations effectively. Um, that gives us the ability to ask the teasing questions and also gives them the confidence to be able to say to us, I know you think you're doing the right thing, but this is the impact it's having on me. So more conversation, more dialogue, and above all, an openness about um, those impacts is, is vitally important, but it's all possible to do. But I think, yes, the, the point she makes is very, very valid. It's very easy to think you're doing the right thing and then have an unintended consequence. And that's where, like in all good innovation, you need to be good at succeeding um, and, you know, succeed fast and fail fast. And you mentioned you do this because it's in the companies or the partnerships DNA. Uh, it's the right thing to do. You are sort of satisfied, I suppose, that customers really care about all this stuff as well. I think they do. I think in, in whenever we've run some insight, um, customers inevitably want to do the right thing, but they don't want it to be to be a big challenge for them. They want to be able to make easy decisions, which then make them feel good that they're doing the right thing. So we have to try and do a lot of that decision making and then explanation um, for them. Uh, in in such a way that's easy to digest. So I think they, especially in the case of Waitrose, they really trust the name above the door. So I think there's an implicit agreement between, implicit informal agreement between customers and Waitrose that when we we say we're going to do something, we absolutely do uh, remain true to that promise. 
but that we will look at every single aspect and not fool the customer into making what they think is a green choice only to then find out um, that it's not. So we have to make it easy for them. We have to do the right thing at every step. And we have to, in, in as succinct as possible a way, communicate with them to reassure them that what they're doing is, is making a green choice. One of the things you did um, pre-pandemic that I thought was very brave uh, was um, effectively a, uh, what you might get at a, you know, a cooperative winery in in the in France somewhere in uh, in, in rural, you know, Gascony, you know, where, where you go along with your own vessel and you can fill up from uh, a, you know a, a bulk wine or certainly a wine that's been for, uh, shipped in a, a larger format. Um, and you can basically refill your vessel. Um, now, I think it was killed, certainly temporarily, by the pandemic, I think, because of the handling and all of those things that we had to deal with at that time. Uh, was that a success or was that something that didn't quite fire in the end? So, so it was, yeah. The, pa- the pandemic really hit us hard in terms of some of those um, day-to-day operations in branch. Y- yes, it was. And um, did did customers... Did customers buy into it to the degree that we wanted? We probably would have wanted a little bit more enthusiasm and, and uptake to be able to allow it to spread further. I think it taught us an awful lot because we started to ask ourselves questions um, in areas not necessarily related to uh, wines and spirits, but in areas like fresh produce. So we now have a much higher proportion of loose vegetables that we offer as a, as a business. It made us think about our upstream and downstream decisions in in drinks as well. Uh, and it's probably accelerated some of the innovation that we mentioned before. It, I mean, everything you do in, um, in in retail, you have to try and take some learnings from. And there will always be trials which are interesting to run. The customer feedback is hugely valuable. I think the trick with things like this, I, I would use Nelson Mandela's quote of, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And we learn a huge amount from the Unpacked project. And it will come to life in some different format at some point in the future when we've managed to rationalise some of those learnings and turn it into something that customers can really get enthusiastic about and buy into. Yeah, well, I, I thought it was a really amazing thing to do and yeah, a really challenging uh, thing to do as well. So uh, on the subject of kind of education, um, it, it almost sounds a bit pompous to talk about educating the customer uh, because you don't go to Waitrose to be educated, really. You go to um, buy some nice food and drink. But um, it is you know, a key part of, of what you do within uh, Wines and Spirits. And, uh, and you uh, were cited for that in, in these awards. Um, how important is education? Hugely. And, and I love the way you couch what you've just said about it, because you're right. It, this is not about going to school. It's about imparting information that will make the customer feel good about their purchase by by trying to try and articulate the, the benefits of what they've done and also sell them a bit of a story. You know, I, I, I do I do have, again, a, a, a mantra with the team that we're not in the business of selling uh, bo- three dimensional bo- glass bottles with alcoholic liquid in them. We're, we're in the business of selling experience. Um, I want a customer to turn around a back label, fall in love with what they see, and then have a relationship with that product until, actually, I always say the recycling. It's actually, it actually goes beyond putting it in the recycling because I want it to be something they're happy to talk about friends to friends about, talk about at dinner parties, um, share on social media, you know, stuff that makes them proud. And you have to use lots of different methods of communication. I mean, one huge benefit is having our BWS specialists in our branches, which, you know, sometimes they have to be the helping friendly face to 
a more elderly customer who wants to buy a bottle of sherry once a, once a month, or they might have to be a much more proactive helping hand to someone who's trying to start a seller. And, you know, above all, um, democratizing the product is vitally important, not making it complex or not making it sound like you have to be an expert to be able to enjoy it. Um, our publications, we're still a grocery retailer that produces a weekly paper for its customers, which I think is is, is really popular. Um, and I think our food magazine, which con- contains a lot of, um, you know, mention of uh, our wines and spirits range, um, I think is the best selling food magazine in the country now. So, you know, we're hugely proud of proud of those. And as the digital age has dawned and we've we've had ways of um, moving some of that information and content online, I think it's the richness of all of those touch points. But talking to the customer as a friend rather than exactly as you say, not trying to educate them, that would be offensive. Um, and, you know, talking about the marriage of, you know, food and, um, and and great quality wines and spirits. I mean, that's something that is is that's just made in heaven. It, it's, it's a great thing to be able to talk about um, as a grocery retailer. And it gives us a huge advantage over potentially very, very good specialists who only really have the wines and spirits to talk about. So, yeah, lots of different avenues, lots of different channels, ways of communicating. But above all, talk to the customer like a friend. It can be very intimidating uh, for a customer, can't it? You know, um, there are wines that people know um, and they have a huge advantage through the fact that people know them. So uh, Sancerre springs to mind, Chablis, uh, you know, people know what they think that is. Although, of course, those wines are are are. are complicated and complex in 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 themselves um and then there are things they don't know and they might be a bit wary of because um they haven't sort of um experienced them before Um, how do you kind of um get your teams to to work with that um the familiarity versus uh, the unfamiliar it's a, it's a very very good question david and i um i'm sure as you have done on on your occasion you visit a winery and you taste all the classics and then there's a little tank or a barrel in the corner and curiously you ask oh that's interesting that looks interesting what's that and they'll tell you oh honestly that's a variety that used to be grown here it's delicious but no one wants to buy it or it's an experiment we did it's quite fun but so you've got to find avenues to be able to talk about those wines and educate customers about them and we what we've tried to do with a couple of ranges which we we're very passionate about um is is bring those to the fore also because i think there's there's something in the waitress dna that loves to celebrate the classic the the authentic the traditional and especially sometimes the forgotten whether it's a forgotten old breed of of pig or or whether it's um or whether it's a variety that's that's gone out of favor in wine terms and so for for a lot of the varieties we've we've launched a range called loved and found which we rotate on a regular basis so parcels of wine that we we source and they are genuine i mean the, the amazing thing about it is when we have the big tasting to look at the whole lot to understand as a team which the goers are which the ones that we want to launch next we sit there and look at each other and say i'm embarrassed to say i've never heard of that or i i didn't know that would be so delicious and those are huge huge amounts of fun and they seem to really have struck a chord with customers and probably made them a little bit braver to try things which are new but um, not famous and, and, and delicious. Um, we've got another little card up our sleeve, which we call On the QT on Waitrose Cellar, which is a, a specialist shop, an online-only platform for wines and spirits. And these are tiny parcels, which um, the great 
uh, Zenia Ruskin King, again, a fellow MW and a colleague, um, sources all around the world from, you know, single casks of casks of incredible Solera Sherry to iconic um, uh, producers making a really unusual variety, or even, I mean, we've had the example of launching a wine, which then subsequently disappeared because the, the vineyard was grubbed up. So lovely, iconic examples, tiny parcels. They go very, very quickly when they're released on Waitrose Cellar. And we are on our 20th to 30th release now. So those are hugely exciting. And they also feed the passion which the team has to continue to discover the undiscovered and, and find a way of bringing exciting things to, to our customers um, in the UK. So yes, it, it's it's a lovely way of being able to take that moment of finding that little icon in a in a wine in some corner of a far flung winery and and celebrating that with millions of customers. I was just looking at the current range uh, online of of Loved and Found, the brand sub brand that you were just mentioning, and there's a Frappato there, one of my favourite uh, grapes from Sicily, delicious. Uh, uh, there's one I haven't heard of. Um, Shia uh, Charelu from France, uh, which looks like a rosé. That that one is that's completely new to me. Um, there's a a Claret, um, a Caladoc, which is a you know a, a variety that um, uh, I think that is a, a crossing or a hybrid. But you'll tell me in a second. But uh, but one that I've only become familiar with uh, in in very recent years, uh, a Sauvignon Gris, which is also really unusual. Um, there are some. Um, Amazing finds here. You're, you're basically saying to the customer, you may not know these, um, but you should. Yeah, it's, I suppose it's, it's again, uh, trust Waitrose to find something for you, which by putting our name on it, we, we kind of guarantee that it's something that's going to be of good quality. And being able to tell a little bit of a story, um, I think, is really important as well. So, yes, you know, um, touring southern France, a lot of uh, local cooperatives will say, yeah, we've, we have we grew a bit of Caladoc. It is exactly as you say, David, a crossing. And, you know, I had not, I had tasted Chacarello many, many, many years ago. And honestly, I thought it had gone by the by. I thought it had all been grubbed up. So, yes, it's from Corsica. And it has a what sounds like a very Sardinian name. Corsica and Sardinia share a lot of names and surnames. That that U ending is very very typical of of, uh, of, of a Sardinian name. Uh, yeah, amazing things to find. And when you've got the combination of them being unusual, great story, and delicious, then you know they have to be a slam dunk, which which we love to put in front of customers and, and hopefully excite them with. And this range, I'm assuming, I mean, it's still there and you're still bringing out new wines. This has been a success. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we've um, we, we've been really proud of how some of them performed. I think what we're trying to also understand is uh, there are certainly varieties that we've um, that we've done over the past um, few years where the demand was so strong. We sold through the initial parcel very, very quickly and they've made an, in, an incredibly strong case for saying um, this should be something that we stock permanently rather than just the parcel. So, yeah, we're working on how we now bring those to market in a more permanent way. But, yeah, they've been hugely successful. Do you think old vines are a significant area for development in terms of uh, selling the value of an old vine? As you say, old vines often grubbed up, sadly, and uh, they, they I genuinely think they do offer something really interesting and delicious, albeit you know, lower yielding and therefore probably uh, more difficult to commercialise. Do you think there's a, an, a, an area for growth there with old vines? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a question of finding the right words to describe to the customer why what they're reading on a label 
if that's the way we convey it, is is a good thing. So it, I think a lot of it comes down to I think as you as you say, the fact the quality is is superb, uh, the iconicity of some of the flavor characters as that single plant produces less and less and less is really interesting. The way a vine develops and how the fruit changes over decades is incredibly interesting. Um, what we need to do is then try and convey that to the customer in the way that's going to make them think, ah, what a, what a lovely thing. That's something that we can really, we can really work with. Do you know, I, I first came across the concept um, in the late 90s when um, I was working for a, a fabulous business called International Wine Services and we had set up winemaking operations in, in South Africa. And myself and my colleagues were spending a lot of time trying to persuade um, small growers not to grub up um, bush vines, very old bush vines of several different varieties, particularly Chenin Blanc. Um, and, you know, it was amazing to taste what these, some of these old vines would produce. And it was, it, we almost had a job to explain to them why they should keep them in the ground and that we would find a way of exciting customers about them. Um, you know, great producers in the, in the Barossa Valley have got vines that date back to the 19th century, incredibly. Uh, I can think of Grenache, which, um, which your lumber cell, which is a, a tricentenary vine. It's, it's lived through three centuries. Incredible mm. stories, yeah. incredible wines, which we have to find a way to talk to customers about in such a way that they can understand and enjoy the quality. It's a, a brief diversion, but I was talking to Sarah Abbott, another master of wine, of course, and an old vine champion. Um, and uh, it is really interesting that certain varieties, you mentioned Chenin there, really do um, sort of shine as old vines more than other varieties, don't they? Absolutely true. I, I think as much as we've learned a lot about viticulture, as our industry has has really tried to understand the science of, of what we do, of how we make wines and spirits, there is so much still to learn. And, and you can only learn so much through decades of trial and error. But you've got to, you've got to allow some of these vines to grow old to understand what the impact is. So anytime we hear about a producer who is experimenting, who has kept plots back, who is, is trying to understand um, how vines change with age and with how you also treat them, you know, the idea of organic and biodynamic uh, or, or also, you know, low intervention is, is really interesting to us. Um, and it's always tricky to strike the right balance of learning as much as you can about that, whilst remembering you've also got a day job and you've got to kind of trade the lovely products you're bringing in. But yeah, our understanding is, is, is changing in leaps and bounds. We, 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 you know, we have, as you know, a, a vineyard down in Hampshire that produces our, our, our own Leckford Estate Brute. And even through the 14 years that we've been growing grapes on those plots, the amount we've understood each year through the, the turmoil of what English vintages are from huge abundance in 2014 to, you know, crop disaster in 2020 when we had huge frosts, you know, the amount you learn and the amount we're now able to discern row by row how they perform against different varieties and rootstocks is incredible. And I think that's a, in a microcosm, that's what the industry learns. Every, every year you add on um, a bit of learning and knowledge, uh, but there's so much still to, to tap into. Well, I want to talk about trends, and that brings us neatly uh, round to um, English sparkling wine and English wine more generally. Um, we talk about it a lot over here, but this is a thing. People are buying into it, aren't they? Absolutely. And my Roman ancestors... 
um, definitely grew vines here 2000 years ago. And the climate isn't that different. We've been through some ebbs and flows since then. But it, it is it is something which is embedded in our in our DNA in, in the UK to a greater extent than perhaps people realise. Um, vineyards have always been um, prevalent in, in, in the English landscape. And we're probably just seeing a renaissance now rather than a beginning. But it's true to say that since the 1950s, we've we've certainly taken it much more seriously. And again, the amount that you see people are learning and the size of infrastructures which are starting to be built, both from a viticultural and a, um, and a winemaking perspective, is really amazing. And we're now starting to produce certainly some sparkling wines, which are, uh, which are definitely starting to vie with some of the, one of the better producers globally of a traditional uh, method sparkling style. Um, I like to think that the extra vibrancy that we get from our cooler climate, let's face it, you know, our, our, our each, each one of our vines is probably producing half of what the equivalent in Champagne is producing in terms of volume. So yields are low. Acidity is very vibrant. But over, over time, whenever I get the, the opportunity or the privilege to taste older English sparkling wines, which have kept well, they are incredibly fresh, probably fresher and brighter than their equivalents might be in Champagne at a similar 10, 15, 20 uh, year old um, example. So yeah, quite exciting. But again, we're learning in leaps and bounds. I think rich red wines are going to be probably some distance off, even with the inevitability of climate change. Uh, but the vibrancy and quality of uh, still dry whites is really exciting. And then every now and then you taste something really from left field. So I've tasted dessert wines that have been made through leaving grapes on vines um, incredibly up in Yorkshire um, for an extended period. So, you know, again, it's, it's a young fledgling, fledgling industry trying to experiment as much as possible. And, and we're learning each year and, and we're constantly stunned by the quality that uh, is appearing on our tasting bench. A Yorkshire dessert wine is uh, something I'm yet to, to try. I think I'm more likely to expect a cup of tea from Yorkshire than, uh, than a sweet wine. But there you go. You know, that, that's how the, uh, the world is, is changing. Um, so um, we'll talk about spirits in just a second, but wines first. What else are you seeing currently in terms of trends? Um, you briefly mentioned the Caladoc and the Frappato, which sit in our loved and found range. And interestingly, both of those are lighter styles of red wine, which which I think has, have always been there. But there's a real rediscovery of those, which I think is quite exciting. So I think that's definitely something which will be prevalent. I think there are still some great countries to, to rediscover. Um, you know, we've seen incredible growth in what I would call New Europe, um, you know, um, Croatia, uh, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, uh, rediscovery of Portugal, which has always been a huge wine producing country um, and some really exciting, unusual varieties coming out of Portugal. Albarino is probably one of the varieties that excites us the most when we when we get to open samples um, with the team. And I think there is huge potential for that variety. It's the it's a beautiful expression of that crisp, dry white style that the UK really loves. So, yeah, there is there are some incredibly exciting things going on. I think some of the innovation will inevitably be driven by the need to try and reduce our carbon footprint as well. So understanding how we can produce wines more efficiently. Um, we're seeing more and more iconic wineries being built that are 
almost self-sustaining in terms of the power usage, uh, a move back to gravity-fed wineries built on hills so that you don't have to use pumps to move wine around. So really clever innovation, but in so many respects, harking back to the wine, the way wine perhaps used to be made when there People couldn't afford pesticides, herbicides when electricity wasn't always available and you had to use gravity. So in some respects, rediscovering environmentally friendly ways of, of making wines that were prevalent centuries ago. But, but lots of lots of really interesting innovation. And what about in spirits? Because um, you're across beer, wine and uh, spirits and uh, wine is is my specialist area, but uh, we absolutely cover spirits on the drinking hour too. So um, you were cited in the award for best spirits uh, supermarket for uh, tequila, amongst other things. Um, that's one of the key trends, is it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, the, one way I like to look at it, David, is that um, if you went back a couple of decades, then there were certain spirits that were always sipped, perhaps on the rocks, but um, definitely sipped spirits and not mixed. And those would have been malt whiskey, uh, cognac, those kinds of spirits. And then you had the spirits that were always mixed, made into cocktails or mixed drinks. So rum, tequila, uh, those kind of you know gins and so on. Uh, and actually what, what you now find is they've almost swapped places. So some of the amazing old aged Anejo 100% agave tequilas are now sipped in the way that you might have sipped a malt whiskey years ago. And, oh gosh, my, one of my favourite cocktails, the penicillin, has a gorgeous, um, really peated malt whiskey top on it. And that would have been unthinkable to mix once upon a time. So I think I think the industry and uh, the spirits industry is good at innovation, has been incredibly good at being brave and suggesting to the customer that, don't feel you have to consume these in a set way. We, we can make it fun. We can be flexible uh, and we can we can open your eyes to really exciting opportunities. So I think that's that's been a really interesting trend that it's been important for us to lead. Also, because, you know, we have uh, we're very, very proud of our performance in areas like malt whiskey, um, where we're able to offer an incredible range we still love to celebrate all of the styles that Scotland produces, but also starting to look at amazing malt whiskies from around the world, be they from uh, Taiwan. People like Cavalan are doing incredible things. Um, Swedish malt whiskies. Of course, we absolutely revere um, Japanese as well. So I think that whole world has been a lovely, um, a lovely part of the spirits category that we can start to really innovate in. And actually, you know, when you think about the amount of tradition, um, authenticity, provenance um, that is celebrated in a lot of those spirits categories, that's exactly the same as wine for me. So certainly when I inherited the department a few years ago, I was surprised that we weren't celebrating spirits in the way we celebrate wine. And I, it was it was definitely an aim of mine to elevate them to the same level, which I think we're, we're succeeding in doing. Well, evidently with this award, actually, to be honest. But um, you uh, joined Waitrose in 2010 uh, in the role. So you have seen in that time a lot of change. Um, but I would imagine that no and low is probably one of the biggest areas of change. Because if I think back to 2010, uh, you know, um, even beer 
uh, at 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 uh, no alcohol level was um, was was pretty hideous, uh, and it's um, been an amazing area for innovation. Um, spirits too, um, wine I think has been catching up and has been a bit less successful. Um, what what's um, your sense on all of that? Have you seen a really big seismic change there? Yeah, absolutely huge, David. And I think again when 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 I think about how alcohol free or low alcohol and alcoholic drinks play in 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 my in my categories uh, i always also think of how plant-based versus traditional protein play in different parts of the same shop and i think in some instances it's you're playing to an audience who doesn't want to drink but wants to drink something quite enjoyable so they they're abstaining for either a religious reason or or, uh, or or a moral reason and then you get people who are trying to mitigate their consumption as well and they are very happy to pay a premium for something and want to taste something delicious. But they might go out to a pub and have an alcoholic beer and then have a no alcohol one and then another alcoholic drink. And then they might alternate. And that's been a real eye opener in understanding how our customers are facing into the, as you say, the burgeoning um, alcohol free and low alcohol category. The quality of the products has really changed um and has improved for the better um, almost unrecognizably so as you alluded to um you know gone are the days when uh, a lonely bottle of caliber somewhere on the back bar was the only option i mean i'm going back way further than 2010 but no some some really uh, amazing innovation um i think the on trade has played a really important part in celebrating it too and in also convincing the customer that you need to pay a proper price for a, for something which is premium, even if it doesn't contain the element of duty or value added tax in the price. And they've done a great job. And I think you go to a pub now, and a, a non alcoholic G and T is usually the same sort of price as a as a as a full alcohol G and T, but delicious serve, looks amazing, nice experience, and, and the product tastes good as well. Um, and I think the more we can convince customers that it's an informed choice and that we will we will only put things in front of them that we think are truly delicious but also being clever about how to suggest perfect serves especially in the areas of uh, of spirits that's a vitally important cog in the in the undeniable trend where we will see the proportion of alcohol free and non-alcoholic um grow um disproportionately over the coming years i think Across the board, um, you have more um, SKUs than uh, most other retailers selling drinks at the supermarket level. I've actually forgotten what SKU stands for, actually. Uh, You can tell me. Uh, Single stocking unit. Right. Um, And uh, somehow you managed to cram this bigger range into stores that are um, generally smaller than your rivals, I would say. Um, So how do you go about deciding um, what you're going to offer within that range? Because I've never bought professionally in my life. I'd be hopeless at it, I'm sure. Because I I want that, I want this, I want to have that, or let's have this, you know, when I see something new in that winery, that corner of the winery you mentioned. So how do you kind of go about curating, editing a range so that you um, have a kind of even sense of uh, choice? Uh, it, it's very, very, it's one of the hardest parts of the job, David, and it's where you need to be incredibly disciplined as a, as a grocery retail buyer and have in mind not just the limited number of spaces you have on shelf, but on the have, a, have a, an idea of the end to end impact of um, all the decisions that you're making. We, we are lucky in that 
the amount of space which we're given within um, one of the Waitrose shops is probably slightly bigger than some of our counterparts. And we certainly work hard to to fit as much as possible in there without it becoming operationally a nightmare to replenish for our branch partners or to fulfil from the point of view of um, uh, of our warehouses as well. So it, it's a really delicate balance. And sometimes it's as difficult as knowing I've got 10 p- spots to fill. I love Wine 11, but with the best will in the world, I simply cannot fit it in. And that's where, you know, having really good communication with the supply base, explaining decisions, explaining that the door is never closed, that there is always an opportunity going forward, but also having different channels and for instance you know sometimes the the decision is imposed upon you because a delicious wine only has a certain availability and sometimes you need to reduce how many shops you put it in to match how much you can sell but having for example waitrose seller or you know a specialist online um, shop is hugely beneficial because those lines which we absolutely love and are passionate about as a team but which we we can't sell in shops or wouldn't be appropriate for shops they do have another opportunity to form part of our total portfolio as um as part of the offer you have to have a crystal ball i guess to an extent um we were talking about trends just now is there anything that you think is next that you would at least like to see happening in your area Yes, I mean, the, the, the legislation around what all of the drinks in our subcategories are called is, is relatively rigid still. I think there's probably a gap, a technical gap below what we currently define as wine. So wine, which is um, between, say, 5 and 10% alcohol. That doesn't really have a name currently, but it can't be called wine. And I think as we go forward and as the industry innovates, more opportunities where the current legislation is quite rigid, if we can make a case to to establish new parts of the category, um, I think that that will be quite beneficial. And that's happened quite successfully in other markets as well. I think the, the crystal ball is only is only possible by talking to suppliers and customers as much as possible to understand what upcoming trends are, not just drinks trends, but lifestyle trends. You know, one thing that we, we are really passionate about is is trying to is trying to do things in such a way whereby the, the gestation period for any product is incredibly long. The moment from putting vines in the ground to actually getting a crop and then producing something, or the time it takes to age an exo cognac means that some things you have to plan a long, long way in advance. And if you think you've got a great idea and you're committed to it, you've got to be brave enough to do it. But, you know, I, I also say to my team, I do expect a certain level of attrition. And in fact, if we're not, if I'm not seeing enough mistakes, I sometimes worry we're not trying enough new stuff out. Because as you know, you know, you might try 10 things and only two work. Um, so yeah, there, there is, there is a, a need to try lots of new stuff to celebrate success and defeat when it comes to those things, but crucially to learn something from everything we do and hopefully do better going forward, share that experience quite openly um, with our suppliers and work with them on tomorrow's trends. I used to say to my team when I ran a news service that some of the worst ideas I'd ever heard um, were my own, actually. So I think the, ma- the main thing is to, is to have them and, and have a few good ones as well, hopefully. But uh, uh, we haven't 
talked much about you. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning, um, obviously you have a very Italian name. Uh, you were Italy's first master of wine, but you were raised over here, but raised, I'm guessing, in the Italian way, because both your parents are, are, are Italian. That's right, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So my late father was from Rome, um, hence the, the Roman ancestry and feeling that some of my ancestors might have been here before. Um, my mum is from the very north of Italy in a, a region that was um, actually part of Austria before the First World War. Um, so two diverse parts of Italy, but yeah, they emigrated to the UK in the 1960s and I was I was born here. Um, but I still hold dual citizenship and we try and dunk the kids in an Italian sea once a year. Um, and uh, which we try and speak as much Italian as possible at home. My, my gorgeous Australian wife um, is, uh, is is trying to learn Italian um, uh, as, as quickly as she can um, to keep up with the kids. But yeah, it's a part of our culture that's celebrated both in terms of the wine and the food that we drink at home. But, you know, we're lucky enough to both work in the drinks industry and be able to celebrate a whole spectrum of um, of, of different um, drinks and, and parts of the world in terms of cuisine uh, to also celebrate our, our varied uh, provenance as well. I guess it was almost a kind of sense of destiny that you would end up working in uh, the drinks world because you basically followed in your father's footsteps to an extent, didn't you? Yeah, Dad, um, D- Dad worked for some of the first importers of Italian wine in the 1960s, 70s in the UK, bringing what we now consider to be household names to the UK for the first time. And it would have been the post-war um, generation of Italian restaurateurs who were struggling to find what they needed to, um, to, serve, to, to, to serve with their Italian food. Um, so, yeah, we, we um, dad had his own business. We had a couple of shops and a wholesale business. And I worked for him after I'd finished my studies, then went on to work for that, the company that bought our family business. And then in 97, I had the opportunity to I'd always been incredibly curious about the off trade, the supermarket industry. And it was a time when more and more supermarkets had gained liquor licenses um, versus perhaps the earlier 50s and 60s when um, it was more rare. But after licensing laws changing, changed, there was a gradual increase in, in the size of ranges, the diversity, and there was a huge amount of excitement about this part of the market that was going to start dominating what had been up until that point, the specialists. And I thought it would be incredibly exciting to have an opportunity at working in that sector. So I was lucky enough to join a company in 97 called International Wine Services. And we were real pioneers. I think we, we kind of really were at the forefront of flying winemaking. And the amount I learned from really talented colleagues, both from a sales, marketing, uh, business development side was, was amazing. And re- that really set me on my journey. Uh, and around the same time, I started uh, my studies and was lucky enough to do quite well at the um, fantastic Wine and Spirit Education Trust and was um, it was suggested that I start my MW studies, which I did and was lucky enough to get through those in relatively um, quick time and then was um, was able to join uh, Tesco. So I worked for that amazing business for three years before I joined Waitrose. So I've had a, a I've been incredibly lucky during my career to have opportunities presented to me, which I've um, I've tried to take and and embrace and do my best at and um yeah i just i feel i've been incredibly lucky um for a very very generous industry very generous individuals who've given me their time and and i hope i try and do the same for people coming up through the trade now it is a very generous industry um i yeah am now in my second career effectively uh within that industry and i i completely concur um you're very well placed to know all about this because um 
we have this massive love affair with Italian food and wine and drinks culture more generally in this country, don't we? We are, obviously, Italy leads the world in terms of exporting its its food culture, but, but we have a particular penchant for it in the UK, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. That there is there is a huge prevalence of it. I think it stood the test of time in terms of it coming from a solid peasant base in many respects. So a lot of the classic recipes that you look at are centuries old and are fundamentally based on on a set of ingredients that reflect probably the Mediterranean diet. So relatively healthy, um, but also accessible and delicious. And and I think that's 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 been the success. When you look at how it's been, how it's evolved in different markets, that's also really interesting. So American Italian cuisine is quite different from what we see. And even what we have sometimes veers slightly from the tradition or or has seen adaptations of. Um, I've really enjoyed Stanley Tucci's series on the TV over the last... Oh, yeah. um, Fantastic. Yeah. Fabulous stuff. Fabulous stuff. Where I think in the same way that what I ask my buyers to do is sell the customer's experience. He does a brilliant job of selling not just how delicious the food is, but the emotion around the food, which is inevitably linked to families gathering around a table, um, eating something delicious, talking about everything and nothing and enjoying something Italian to drink with it too. So, you know, what's not to like? Yeah, I remember uh, talking of British iterations um, in my early 20s, being quite shocked that um, garlic bread uh, didn't really exist in Italy. That was very much a kind of British concoction, a rather unhealthy one. But uh, anyway, final question, because I I don't want to keep you any longer. But um, we always ask our guests for a desert island drink. It could be a wine or a a spirit, whatever you like, really. But if you're stuck on a desert island, you could have anything. What would it be? Hardest question in the world, David. I know. Hardest question in the world. My, My my two great loves in terms of the um the areas i look after i'm going to be so cheeky and suggest two so i am the kind of wine that i i love i love crisp dry white wine and the type of wine we drink the most at home that i would be happy to drink every day from tomorrow onwards would be like um, a crisp dry australian riesling eden valley clare valley something like that but that lovely style but i do love a wee dram of isla malt whiskey so, yeah, I'd, I'd have to hedge my bets and say I, I would be very difficult to contend with if I didn't have those two for the rest of my life. So those would be my two. Yeah. OK, well, we'll let you have two on your desert island then. Pia Paolo, thank you so much. It's been really fascinating. Congratulations to you and the team again uh, on the on the double of both of those awards. Um, fantastic to see them go to Waitrose, richly deserved. And thanks so much for um, spending an hour with us on The Drinking Hour. That's my great pleasure. It was lovely to talk to you, David. Thank you. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. Okay, let's round off, as always, with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame and in recognition of Waitrose and Partners' success at the IWSC, landing both of those retail awards, wine and spirits retailers. Uh, Let's uh, pick out some medal winners to look out for from the range. Let's start with uh, an exceptional sherry, Bodegas Toro Albala, Don PX, Grand Reserva, 1999. Uh, If that sounds like a mouthful, then just look out for Don PX. A gold medal winner, 96 points for this. Uh, It's stocked at Waitrose Cellar, I just checked. 
um, a PX, a Pedro Jimenez. So delicious, sweet, but balanced. Uh, the tasting note from a panel that included two masters of wine is the shortest uh, that I've ever seen. It just says alluring. So there you go. But it sounds absolutely delicious. I may have mentioned this wine before, uh, but it's worthy of another plug. Gabrielle's Kloof, the Landscape series, Cabernet Franc, 2020, a gold medal winner. This is from Walker Bay in South Africa's Western Cape. Uh, I was actually on the judging panel for this one. I, I remember it. Uh, it's a delicious wine. Here's our tasting note. Charming and vibrant with all the guilty decadence of swooping the last syrupy Morello cherry from the jar. Sumptuous, complex spices of tobacco leaf, nutmeg, red earth, and a whiff of rare steak. Outstanding. To Italy next, close to Pierpaolo's heart, obviously. Uh, Montidori, Sangiovese, 2020. This is from Emilia Romana. Uh, it's a silver medal winner, described as layered and complex. There are bright notes of kirsch, sour cherry, and crushed petals. Good concentration on the palate and ripe tannins. Well, Pierpaolo oversees spirits as well, of course, and beer, but we don't really do beer on this uh, podcast, but uh, we do definitely do spirits. Here's an own brand scotch next. Waitrose and Partners, number one, eight-year-old blended scotch whiskey. Uh, it won a strong silver medal. The judging panel, overseen by Richard Patterson, OBE, said this. Welcoming fresh bread aromas with orange and lime marmalade. The palate has... Delicate peat smoke with pine nuts, biscuity grain, and lots of lovely fruit. And an own brand vodka that performed very well, also winning a silver. Uh, Waitrose and Partners Pure and Smooth Triple Distilled Vodka. Here's the panel's verdict for that. Uh, clean and crisp with a decent creamy profile on tasting, yet maintains its pleasingly neutral palate. Heat builds on the finish, well balanced, the judges said. That is it for another edition of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Pierpaolo Petrassi, MW, and congratulations again on the awards to the team at Waitrose and Partners. And thank you to you for listening. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. And do look out for my wine column at uh, Club Onologique as well, if you have a moment. Uh, do join us next time. For now, goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits.